Well, Dr. William Evans uh, pastored at College Church. I believe it's on the Wheaton campus uh, in Chicago from 1906 to 1908. And he was an unusually accomplished man. He had the entire King James Version of the Bible memorized, as well as the New Testament of the American Standard Version of the Bible. And he also wrote more than 50 books. He had a son, Lewis, who was uh, one of the best-known preachers in America. And for many years, his son pastored at First Presbyterian Church in Hollywood. So when Dr. Evans retired, he moved to Hollywood to be closer to his son and would occasionally preach for him when uh, Lewis was away. Well, one Sunday, uh, he was called to, to speak, to preach, and he preached on the virgin birth. And everyone in the room was amazed when he raised his Bible and tore out the pages that narrate the birth of Jesus and kind of ripped them up and threw them in front of the church. And as those pages floated to the ground, he shouted, if we can't believe the virgin birth, then let's tear it out of the Bible. And then to drive home his point, he flipped forward to the resurrection chapter, ripped those out and said, if we can't believe this, if we don't believe this is God's word, if we can't believe this, let's get it out of here. And on and on he went. Eventually, the, the floor in front of him was filled with these pages. And finally, with immense drama, he held up the only remaining portion, portion and said, all that we have left is the Sermon on the Mount. And that sermon has no authority for me if a divine Christ didn't preach it. He had a few more words, and then he asked his listeners to bow for a benediction. Before he could pray, a man in that vast and sedate congregation stood and cried, No, no, go on. We need more. And several others joined in. And so Dr. Evans preached for another 50 minutes. I joked in the first service that if you stand up at the end of a message and say, Go on, you likely won't get 50 more minutes out of me. But here's the point. Do we hold Scripture with authority? Or do we just do with it as we please? But we're into week two of our uh, series DNA, looking at the core values of the church, uh, the local church, and also our church. Last week we started and we started talking about Jesus. We said Jesus is the center of everything we do, and he's to be the center of our lives as well. Everything we do here at Trinity is to make his name great. That is a core value. It is kind of the central conviction of us as a church and for the local church, I would suggest, as well. We said that he is the lead pastor of Trinity Bible Church, and we come under his teaching. Jesus is the Redeemer. Jesus is the Good Shepherd that laid down his life for us. He is our hope. He is everything. We said that Jesus is the center, that Jesus matters. This morning, we want to look at the Bible, at the Word of God. We believe that God's Word matters. And here's how we have articulated this statement. And you can find our, our core value statements on our website. You can go to trinitycanmore.com and kind of the menu bar at the top, there's an about section. You can kind of scroll down to mission, vision, and values, and they're all listed there. But here's how we've articulated it. We enjoy and submit to God's powerful, beautiful, and essential word. What we're saying is that we agree with Dr. Evans that all of the Bible, rightly understood, is true, and you and I don't get to pick and choose the parts that we like enough to follow and which parts we, you know, we don't really like, so we tear them out and, and just leave them behind. So, what is the Bible? 
Uh, Brett McCracken, in his wonderful book, uh, The Wisdom Pyramid, describes the Bible this way. He says, the, the Bible is our solid foundation, as well as the grid through which all other sources of wisdom are tested. In a world with information overload, the Bible is graciously concise yet comprehensive. In a world where information is fleeting and unreliable, the Bible is an ancient book that endures in every age. It's the best-selling book of history that has been read, preached, probed, and treasured by billions across the centuries. And in a world of to-each-their-own-truth, where one's inner compass is supposedly a trustworthy guide, the Bible represents an infinitely more reliable source of knowledge and truth, God himself. The Bible is our most important source of wisdom because it is literally the eternal God, the standard and source of all truth, revealing himself. What a miraculous thing it is. So, what is the Bible? Sometimes it is best for us to go right back to the basics. So here are four key headlines about the Bible. Maybe these are new to you if you're just uh, new to the faith, new to the Bible, and that's great. I'd love to hear any questions following the service. Maybe these points are more of a, f a refresher for you, and maybe nothing is new, but hopefully this is a, a refresher that will, it will stir up a, a passion for God's Word in your heart and maybe also give you some language that you can use when describing to others what the Bible is. So, here we go. The first of our four headlines. The Bible is a library. That is to say, it's not a single book, but it is a collection of books. It is a collection of 66 books written by more than 40 authors in three languages on three different continents over the course of about 1,500 years. It's a collection of books. Uh, most of the books are named for their author, like Daniel or Isaiah. Some of them are named for the events they discuss, like Genesis describes the beginnings and the creation. Exodus deals mostly with the great exodus of the Jewish people from Egypt and, uh, under Moses. Lots of the books are also letters, and they're named for the people who received those letters. Philippians was first sent to the people who followed Jesus in the city of Philippi. Ephesians to the people living in Ephesus. First and second Timothy were letters that the apostle wrote to a man he was mentoring, Timothy. So, the Bible is a library of books reflecting on different times in history with different authors, different settings, and different emphases. That takes us to our second big headline. The Bible has two testaments. Again, this may not be new. Maybe you've heard this before. There are two main parts of the Bible that we usually call the testaments. The Old Testament has 39 books. The New has the remaining 27. Now, the word testament itself means an agreement or a covenant and typically refers to a pact or a treaty, uh, an, an alliance or an agreement between two parties, which gives us a bit of a hint at what's in the Bible. James Emery White, who's a pastor uh, in the States, notes this in his book, After I Believe. The Bible is a record of God's great covenants, his promises with us in regard to our relationship with him. It's a record of God's dealings with us. The Old Testament is a record of God's agreements with people before the time of Jesus. And the New Testament is a record of what transpired when Jesus came and following his resurrection. See, that's the unique thing about this library. It all tells the same story. It's 66 books, again, across a massive span of time and different authors and, and different locations, but it tells the same story. There's one 
thread that runs from beginning to end. The Old Testament anticipates and builds towards the New Testament, and the New Testament fulfills the Old Testament and completes it and writes the final chapters of the story. And that's why it's called the Bible. Our English word Bible comes from the name of the papyrus or the Biblos read, which was used to make scrolls and books. And so because these books were made from this kind of read, they became known as Bibles. But the writings of the Old Testament and the writings of the New Testament were so special and so sacred and so revered that they simply became known as the book, the Bible. Our third headline, this is kind of where it comes to what churches believe and Christians have believed, is that the Bible is sacred. As followers of Jesus, we believe that the writings of the Bible are the very words of God. It's God revealing himself to us. It's him initiating a conversation with us if we're willing to listen. John Frame writes this. He says, The whole course of the biblical narrative is structured as dialogue. God speaks, mankind responds. The course of subsequent history is the result of mankind's response to God's word. This is the amazing thing about the Bible, that maybe if we've been around it for a while or just kind of grown up with it in our, our homes or whatever, that, that maybe we, we forget or have got a, got a bit complacent about. When we open the Bible, this is not just any book. This is the word of God, and when we come to it, we are encountering God himself. But how do we know this? It's hard to say, well, the Bible is this because the Bible says so, right? Uh, if we had all our Sunday school kids from the first uh, service here this morning, we would say, how do we know this? And the right Sunday school answer to every question is always Jesus. That's how we know this. Now, the Old Testament writings were considered sacred before Jesus, but Jesus is the one that confirms those writings as sacred. And then it's also him who elevates what we have as our New Testament to be sacred as well. See, we believe that if, if Jesus is who he says he was, that we sung about, that we just celebrated at Christmas, that he is God himself come to be with us, then what Jesus says matters. And if he called writings scripture, then they're scripture. It's his opinion that matters here, not mine and not yours. He's our ultimate authority. So let me give you a couple of quick uh, examples and implications of this. First, uh, we accept the Old Testament as Scripture because Jesus did. When we read the, the narratives, the Gospels that have Jesus in them, when we see his teaching and we read him saying that he believed in the Scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament because the New Testament wasn't written yet. Here's a couple of examples of, of him elevating the Old Testament to Scripture level. Matthew 5, 19. Jesus teaches, I tell you the truth, that until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. God's law for him was the scriptures, the Old Testament. Later in John 10, uh, 15, he says, and you know that the scriptures cannot be altered. This is serious. This is a thing. We're not me messing with this. And then really interestingly, uh, Jesus introduced an Old Testament passage in Mark chapter 12 saying, for David himself, who was speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said this. And then he goes on to quote David from the Psalms. So clearly to Jesus, the Old Testament were no ordinary writings. He thought that, 
we think that. The second, we accept the New Testament because it records what Jesus taught. Again, <clears throat> if Jesus is who he says he was, God in human form, which we again have sung about, we just celebrated during Advent, if he is Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, then his words fall into the category of sacred writings because he's God. And he also then sets the foundation for the rest of the New Testament to be accepted as scripture through the apostles. Now, Jesus chose that word, that title of apostle, for a very small select group of his disciples in order to uh, indicate their unique role. The word apostle literally means those who have been sent. And Jesus sent these apostles on the mission of preaching and teaching. The word is only used for the original 12 disciples and again, a few select others, most notably the apostle Paul. Now, each of these apostles received a unique commission from Jesus himself. They were never self-appointed. So I cannot come to you with the same weight and say, I am an apostle just like them. So my words are as important as these, right? This is a select group that Jesus himself commissioned. Each of these apostles uh, had an, 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 a personal historical experience of being with Jesus himself. They spent time with him. They were mentored by him. Remember in the beginning of Acts when, when the disciples chose a replacement for Judas. Remember that? It's a, bit of, a little bit of an obscure story maybe. Remember one of the chief characteristics for the people they were choosing from? Do you remember what it was? That they had been with Jesus. It was not one of the closest 12, but it was another one of those group that had traveled with Jesus, that had heard him teach, that had seen the miracles, that had, had been close to Jesus. Now, Paul, of course, was a little bit different, but he did have a post-resurrection interaction and appointment with Jesus. And again, without that, he could never have been called an apostle. Jesus also said that the Holy Spirit would give these apostles a remembrance of his teachings and inspire them to teach others uh, the truths from God as well. Look at John 16, starting in verse 13. He says, The Spirit will show what is true and come and guide you into the full truth by taking my message and telling it to you. That's why the teachings of the apostles are considered scripture. Because the key factor of what it took to be included in the New Testament was simple. Was it written by or based on the teachings of Jesus or one of his apostles. It's why when we read the book of Acts early in chapter 2, late in chapter 2, but early in the book of Acts, the, the story of the early church, we read these words that the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The early church knew who this group was. Sometimes I think we, we, we come to our Bibles and, and we, we, we chop it apart into two little two little bits, and we forget the connections that, that might be there. And so we, we maybe forget that, that the early church, they knew who Peter and John were. They maybe walked with Jesus and, and followed Jesus and heard Jesus speak and saw Peter and James and John with him. They knew who Paul was. And they knew that, that in this sense, these guys, they were not just ordinary men, but they had been called by Jesus as apostles, filled with his spirit and commissioned by Jesus himself. So this library, this Bible that we have, isn't just some random collection of books that were haphazardly thrown together by church leaders hundreds of years after Jesus lived. 
Jesus himself embraced and affirmed the Old Testament as the word of God. The first four books of our New Testament, the Gospels, capture his life and teaching as God himself in human form. And the rest of the New Testament was personally commissioned by Jesus, written by his hand-picked apostles through the special work of the Holy Spirit as they wrote. This is significant. James Emery Emery White concludes this. This means that what we have in the Bible is God's revelation to us. The word revelation comes from the Latin word revelatio, which means to draw back the curtain. It's a theatrical term. He says, imagine a stage where a play is about to begin. You're in the theater and you're waiting for it to begin. You can't know the story of the play until the curtain is pulled back and the play is revealed. That's the Bible. It's God's revelation. It's God revealing himself and his truth uh, and revealing truth about himself that could not otherwise be known. Now, just before we get to our fourth headline, I want to interject a quick thought and hope and prayer here for us. It is my hope and prayer this morning, or wherever you are, if you're listening to this later, that you wouldn't be tracking along with me and just gathering information I mean, yes, this is information. I hope you agree it's good stuff. It's important stuff. But what I hope and pray this morning is that every one of us that hears this would fall more and more in love with the Bible. That we would see it for what it is. It's God's revelation to us. It's him showing himself to us. It's his word for us. It's his love letter to us. It's how he connects with us and how we can connect with him. It's foundational It's core, it's central, it's essential, not only to our relationship with God, but also to our flourishing as a people. And I can tell you that the days or weeks or months when things seem to be a little more out of control for me, when I find myself to be a little bit more anxious, when I find myself less patient with those around me, when my stress levels creep up and up and up, when things just aren't going well, those days, weeks, seasons, times, they're the ones where I haven't spent discipline time in the Bible. And I believe that 100%. I can look back uh, on a day even and go back to the day and say, man, I was, really, I was really short with my kids today. Man, I was, really, I was really set off on the highway when someone passed me. It's icy, you clown. Slow down, whatever, right? Like, I, I can look back and see these like, high-pressure moments and realize I skipped this morning. Or this morning I just rushed through my time in the Word because I needed to get it done to get on to the next thing, whatever it might be, right? And I, I know that I can hold my stuff together for a little while, but you know what? I'm confident that my kids, my wife, those closest to me, they know pretty quickly that something's different when I've been neglecting my time with the Lord and in the Bible. Maybe they don't know why things are off, but no question they can tell Something's wrong with Dad. Something's off. My prayer for us is that we would fall in love again with this book, with this library. Okay, the last headline. The Bible is not a normal book. It's inspired by God. And we need to be really clear with what we mean when we use the word inspired because it's one of those words that gets thrown around quite a bit. Sometimes the word inspired is used to describe something really creative, like like a painting by the master, or listening to a famous opera, or watching a play by, by Shakespeare. 
Sometimes we use inspired to describe a performance by a musician or actor or athlete. We could go up to the Nordic Center to the, to the trials right now and say, man, the, these, that win by so-and-so, man, that was an inspired effort. Sometimes it's, it's a feeling we get when we wake up and the skies are just pink and purple with sunrise. I just, I, I'm inspired by this. But throw all of that out. That's not what we're talking about here. Listen to how the apostle, Paul, describes inspiration when he's describing it in his second letter to Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, I'll start at verse 14. He says to Timothy, But you must remain faithful to the things you've been taught, for you know that they're true and that you can trust those who taught you. And you've been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and they have given you wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. Here he goes in verse 16. All Scripture is inspired, there's our word, by God, and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what's wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. And God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. The word Paul uses for inspired, he, he actually made up a word for this. It literally means God breathed. That's the idea behind the inspiration of the scripture, that it's breathed out by God, exhaled by God, produced by God. This is not a human book. It was written by humans, yes. We know most of their names. But it was written as they were moved by God. The writings reflect their personality and their vocabulary and their writing, their writing style, but the writing itself was stirred and motivated by God. God. More than 3,000 times in the Bible, we find the writers using some form of the expression, the Lord says. And if you flip to uh, Jeremiah, he records the words of God saying to him that I, God, have put my words into your mouth. The idea of inspiration is that, yes, God used people to write the books of the Bible, but he was so involved in the process that they wrote exactly what he wanted. Peter also makes this clear when he writes in 2 Peter chapter 1. Above all, you must realize that there's no prophecy in Scripture. There's our words, Scripture. And no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. So there's our four big headlines for the Bible. It's a library. It has two testaments. It's sacred and it's inspired. And especially those last two, it's important to know it's a library, it's important to understand it's two testaments, but the fact that it's sacred and the fact that it's uh, inspired are what makes us hold the Bible with such high value here at Trinity. So, what do we do with this? Let me uh, quickly give you a few principles for handling the Bible. How do we do this well? The first, we let the Bible speak to all of our lives. Paul just told Timothy this, right? He said, uh, Scripture is inspired by God. It's breathed out by God, and it teaches us what is true. It helps us realize where we're wrong, and we need that. It corrects us, and it teaches us to do what is right and prepares us to do every good work. Look at also how the author of Hebrews describes the Bible in Hebrews 4, verse 12. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division between soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intention of the heart. This 
pierces all of us. It goes to the deepest bits of our being. So we're to let the Bible define all of our lives, not just the religious part, not just the spiritual part, not just the time from 11 to 12.30 on Sunday when we gather together or whenever it is. But Scripture speaks to every area of our life. Money, relationships, it speaks to art. It's filled with art, with creativity, to family, to justice, to politics, and on and on and on and on it goes. To handle the Bible rightly means we let it inform every area of our lives, which leads us to the second uh, principle, that Scripture should define our paradigm, our lives, not the other way around. I'm sure if we think about it, we can see uh, people who may call themselves followers of, of Christ, who, who, who take that title, maybe when it's convenient, whether it's in business or politically or whatever, they take that title, but they seem to be missing some key things of what's in the Bible. And what they've done is they've, they've made up their minds and then they've come to the Bible to back up their views on those things. They're, they're trying to define it, not letting it define them. And we can see this in our own lives too. We like some parts of the Bible. I like it when God says he's for me. I like it when God says he's, he's adopted me as a son. I like it when God says all these things. We get nervous when we go to some other parts. Like the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, you've heard it said, don't murder. But I tell you, if you've been angry, you're guilty of the same thing. That makes me squirm a little bit. We always need to guard against force-fitting the Bible into our understanding, and we let it um, shape us instead. Which leads us into the third paradigm, or the third point here, that Scripture is valuable as a whole, not just the parts. And that was the point Dr. William was making in the story that I opened with. Sometimes we have the tendency to, to just stick to our favorite parts of the Bible, right? I've done this. I've only you know, stuck in whatever part. But maybe you've heard someone say, you know what, I'm a red-letter Christian. I just deal with the words of Jesus. Some say, well, I like Paul. I'm just going to read Paul's stuff. Others choose the New Testament over the Old Testament. And some stick to the, the scientifically feasible parts of the Bible and neglect the supernatural. We can all do this. But as John Frame says, since Scripture is God's personal word, all of it is authority. All of it is authoritative, excuse me. Not just the parts that we find attractive, cogent, relevant, or culturally respectable. This is why we typically preach through whole books of the Bible here at Trinity. And Lord winning, willing, eventually we will get through the whole Bible. Because if I had to choose myself, I would steer away from those parts that are less attractive and less culturally respectable. Because it's, it's tough. It's a hard word. This is why we recommend a, a, a whole year Bible reading plan. And I printed some out and put it at the back. It's because it, it forces us to read sections of the Bible that we might not find ourselves wandering into otherwise. The fourth point here, Scripture should spark worship and obedience. James puts it so well when he says, you should be doers of the word, not just hearers. Right? We come to the word, we, we encounter the Lord and he has something for us. And if we just close and go on, we've missed something. We're supposed to hear from the Lord and then go and do what it says. We have the Bible to bring us transformation, not just information. We hear from God through his inspired word, and we, we're drawn to him. 
And sure, having my sin called out is uncomfortable and I don't like it, but I know that as I read the Bible, I will grow in my understanding that God is for me and that God wants what's best for me. doesn't matter if it's comfortable or not. He has my best interests at heart. And I will understand better all he's done for me to prove that. And the last thing, and I don't want to say it's most important, but I think it's really important. Scripture doesn't have to make complete sense. There's a mystery to it. It's God's word, so we, we likely will never understand everything. If we're dealing with an omniscient, all-knowing God, we will not always understand. Brett McCracken, again, helpfully says this, the difficulties of Scripture should invite us to even more rigorous and precise examination, going deeper and wider in our study as lifelong learners, not because we have to know everything God knows, but because the more immersed we are in Scriptures, the nearer we feel to His sweet presence. I was talking with someone after the first service about you know, an issue that had come up reading reading scripture and how we interpret it rightly and and it can be a dividing thing in the church and and, and I was wrestling with this this thing and, and all of a sudden the Lord gave me a verse somewhere else that said by faith we believe this and that doesn't mean that we don't dig in and understand and try to, to gain knowledge and wisdom all wisdom's God's wisdom so we, we dig for it but there's a sense where we can just say man God you're a God you can do whatever you want however you want thank you and we just enjoy his presence the more we are immersed in the scriptures, the nearer we feel to his sweet presence. Okay, a couple of action steps for us. The best time to start reading your Bible regularly was the first time somebody handed it to you. The second best time to start reading your Bible regularly is today. If you miss a day, fine. Try not to miss two. If you do miss two, fine. Try not to miss three. We're not trying to be legalistic here, but find time. Make time for this. I was reading a, a blog by a pastor out in Toronto uh, this week, and, and on the side of his blog page, he, you know, sometimes they have ads for whatever else, and there was an ad for this app that you could download. I think it was called like Redeem the Time or something similar. I couldn't find it when I went back to look for this thing. But there's this app called Redeem the Time that you could download on your device, and you could open the, the app up, and it asked you, because some of us waste time on our phones. Maybe you've heard of this. But it asked you, how much time do you have to kill right now? And you could kind of scroll through and say, okay, well, maybe I'm picking up the kids from school in 15 minutes. I've got 15 minutes. Select, hit go. And when you chose that amount of time, it popped up a list of the books of the Bible that you could read start to finish in that time. Yeah. So uh, the example on the page was 10 minutes. And so whoever on the screenshot, it put in 10 minutes. There's something like 12 or 13 books of the Bible that you could read start to finish in 10 minutes. There's something beautiful about that, about not just uh, grabbing a verse here, a verse there, but reading a, a letter or a, or a book start to finish, and you, you, you get kind of the whole uh, umbrella story of what that author's trying to get. So grab something like that if you can. Grab a contemporary translation. If you are new to the Bible, don't grab the King James Version. Uh, maybe you're an English major, and that's fine, and you can do it. That's that's up to you. If you're not, just grab a contemporary translation. We have a glut of English translations, and there are some really good ones. Uh, myself, in my, my morning readings lately, I'm in the New Living Translation. Uh, lots of the verses we posted this morning were from there. Uh, I, 
I've come to like the Christian Standard Bible. If you want another recommendation, typically we preach and we have in the room the English Standard Version as well. Grab a contemporary one and read it. Grab a five-day plan at the back if you want. Start with week two if you want to start because then you don't feel like you have to catch up a whole week. And find people to read it with. One of the things that I have uh, can attest to is that if I'm doing a reading plan with people, I'm way more likely to actually follow through and do it because I know they're going to ask, hey, did you read today? And I, you know, I don't like saying no to people. So find someone to do it with. Last week, I did this in the first service. I'm going to try it here. Last week, I printed out, I think, 20 copies of that five-day reading plan and said, let's try to do this as a church. If you don't have something picked yet, use this. If you do, great, do your thing. How many picked up that plan last week if you were here? Got a few? Okay. There are some more at the back. Keep your hands up. Don't put them down yet. If you need to find someone to discuss this reading with, look around the room at the hands. There, I found some people for you. If you're online, put your name in the chat so we can find you as well. The point isn't to embarrass people who, who have started or not started, but the point is to say, find someone to do it with because you will keep one another accountable and you'll get through it easier. Use an app like YouVersion. I love the YouVersion Bible app. It's on uh, all of my devices. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of reading plans, from whole Bible plans to, to select topical plans. And when you start one, it asks you, hey, do you want to read this alone, or do you want to read it with friends? And they can say, I'd like to read it with some friends. Hit the button. Who would you like to read it with? And there's a whole list of ways that you can connect people to read with you so that you stay in it together. One, I think it's the last action step. Yeah, I'll do that. Last one. Start your day with Scripture. It doesn't have to be sitting down and reading a whole book of the Bible. Open up your YouVersion Bible app or whatever your preferred one is. The YouVersion has a verse of the day. Start with that. Read a verse. Look at the pretty pictures they post out that go with it too that you could share to social and start with that. Studies have shown that um, when you're at work, at your desk, stuck on a creative problem, one of the most beneficial things you can do if you're, if you're stuck is stand up and go for a walk. And what we found is that, that while you're out walking, if I'm stuck trying to write something or whatever here, I can go for a walk around the paths around here. And while I'm walking, my like conscious attention is don't get hit crossing the road, watch out for elk in the trees, enjoy nature, whatever else. But my subconscious is still working on that problem. And the, the studies have said, this is why so many of our best ideas come in the shower. Because we're not actually working on the thing, but our brains somehow are still working on the thing. So what does that have to do with the Bible? If we started, imagine if we started our day with a verse. One verse. Spend five minutes with it. Try to memorize it. It doesn't have to be a long one. Jesus wept. That's a good one to start with. Spend some time thinking, well, what was Jesus crying about? Why was this? It gets in our mind, and then it's stuck in our subconscious as closely as it for the whole day. What, what an amazing way to start and, and center ourselves. The point, again, of all of this is not to give us another thing to check off, another to-do list that we feel guilty about if we don't do it. But the point of all of this is to know God more. As we move to communion this morning, let me close with this quote. God could have left us in our ignorance, undeserving sinners that we are, but he didn't. He peeled back the curtain and then he opened his holy mouth. Any authentic knowledge of God hinges on his generous self-disclosure to us. Only through his words can we discover who he is, what he's like, 
what he's after, and how we can know him. And this ought to humble us deeply. The Bible you possess is evidence that God loves you and wants a relationship with you. No matter who you are or how many times you have spurned his love, he is still moving towards you, still talking to you, still befriending you through a book. As we move to communion, we celebrate communion together as a church because of the Bible, because the Bible tells us to, because Jesus was our example in this. We celebrate communion because it reminds us of how much God loves us, that he would send his son to reconcile us to him, to pay for our sin, to, to pay for the neglect of his word in my life even. And we can, we can hand anything to him, right? But maybe that's a good place for, for me and for us to start this morning. So let me pray. Then I'll pass out the elements. I'll invite Vern to come and, and lead us. God, thank you for this morning. And thank you, thank you, thank you for your word. Thank you for your holy scriptures. Help us to treasure them. I pray that, that, that even this right now, this morning, this afternoon, the next time we open up your word, we would come with, with an attitude and a, and a heart that's transformed that says, I'm, I'm not just coming to read because the pastor says I should read my Bible, but I'm coming to read to have an encounter with the creator of the universe. God, forgive me for when I've come to the word with anything less when I've come with a, an attitude of arrogance of saying, I'm going to read this today so that I can brag that I read my Bible again today, five days in a row, look at me. Forgive me for that. I pray that we would come and we would encounter you through your word, through the, the sections we're familiar with, the sections we're comfortable with, and even in the sections that we have no idea what you're trying to say to us through them. Holy Spirit, interpret your word for us so that we might know you who you are, what you've done, what you're after, and how much you love us. Jesus, thank you that you came. You came as the word. That you elevated the Old Testament to Scripture, that you, you came as God and taught us and commissioned others to teach us what we have in the Bible. Jesus, thank you for your perfect life. You showed us how to relate rightly to God, to others, to creation. And thank you that you went to the cross for my sin, for our sin, to reconcile us to you so that we might be adopted into your family, to be a part of your church, to bring your light here in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.